In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. And the people I've met, and so many people I know on this retreat, have had great sufferings in their life, have great problems that they want to talk about, um, or indeed have such a great love as St. Thomas More. There are two people on this retreat who've carried my own book about him for seven or eight years and have been all around, one man's been all around England practically, seeing every place where St. Thomas lived. And one or two of you have asked about books about Thomas More, which I might deal with later, but I don't want to talk about now. Yet I do want it recorded that I know the books, or some of them, Two very hostile books to Thomas More have come out in the last year. One of them came out recently, and I've read it very carefully, and one is reviewed here. And I'd like the gentleman who gave me the review to take it back. I'll leave it on the table here. The review is by Elton, who's a professor at Yale, I think, and a very able man. And this book, which I haven't read, it's new, is called Thomas More, History and Providence, by Fox. And I thought the review, actually, Elton knows very well, he sees the problem. The problem is that until recently, people couldn't read all the works of Thomas More. When he died, for 20 years practically, none of his works were known at all. Then when Bloody Mary came to the throne, his nephew, published them all, and since then, on that 1557, they were never published in full till when I was middle-aged. I read most of them years ago, but now Yale, the wonderful for a university, which isn't Christian or isn't Catholic, a fund was given, and wonderful people of all kinds published every work he ever wrote. So now they're available, some 20 volumes, at uh, Yale, Yale great tribute to Yale that that happened. But of course, when you publish a man all his works, now those who like him or don't like him can read all the various things he wrote. I hadn't read all of them myself before, but they're going to cause shock and they're going to not belittle him as a saint, but they're going to attribute things to him, especially those who come from the other side. The bitterness in religion doesn't end at any century as you can see in Ireland, in Belfast. You can't wipe it out. Mr. Ridley, who's written this new book, Jasper, his great-great-great-great-uncle, I think, was way back, was burnt by the Catholics as a Protestant bishop. So you wouldn't expect much love from him. He also wrote The Life of Cranmer and Ridley and Knock John Knox. So he's very much on the left-wing side. On the other hand, there are a good number of pious books about more on the Catholic side which don't stand up to it. So I wouldn't be too worried when they don't tell lies. At any rate, the gentleman who asked me, the book by Fox 
isn't totally anti-moral. Ridley's one is much worse because he's a lapsed lawyer. We've got a certain number who haven't lapsed yet here, but he was a lawyer and found he could make more money by writing biographies. But he's like a police court man. He's out to show he has always has somebody he's going to pull to pieces. And unfortunately, there's no counsel on the other side for the defense. So any mean thing he can say, he says it. Mind you, it's mostly his own opinion. The great thing about Moore, I always feel, is that he's the only saint who got away with it, that he wasn't known to be a saint in his lifetime. There's no evidence whatever anybody ever thought of him as holy, even. And so therefore, first of all, he's the only saint who's got a decent picture of himself. He landed Holbein, where most of us land sort of Mother Gabriel of the Seven Swords or something. So most of the saints look very goofy and have got their eyeballs coming out. But Moore was painted by the greatest artist and the most critical man who, if ever it was nearly a Protestant, a great writer, was his most beloved friend, Erasmus. So everything we know of Moore practically comes from his dearest friend, who was certainly not in any way trying to make Moore out to be a saint. Indeed, while Moore was alive, nobody ever thought of him as a saint. And when they now write, which Jasper Ridley does, how Moore scourged himself and he was a fanatic and that he was cracked on pain and hair shirts, Moore never did any of those things. He's one of the few saints who, though he didn't like having a drink, always drank a little wine or had a glass made so you couldn't tell what the hell he was drinking. A sort of colored glass so he could get away with coke, but he always had a drink. He gave nothing up for Lent. He wore a hair shirt. Well, now they make that into a sort of monstrosity, as though he ought to go and see Freud. Uh, but in fact, in those days, after all, we didn't have all these lovely supermarkets where you could get polyastra treated with something else. They all wore wool, and if you were very rich, you wore very high-class wool. And if you were down and out, you wore sackcloth, as in the Bible. And Moore wore a shirt of sackcloth, though he didn't need to, but nobody ever knew. It was only near the end of his life when he took his shirt coat or jacket off when it was hot that his future daughter-in-law spotted his hair shirt. He never told anyone. I find no evidence that he scourged himself. I wouldn't hold it against him if he did, but I can't find any evidence for that. All those things were added later, and these chaps who want to make him to appear abnormal Half their trouble is they didn't believe in God. And if you don't believe in God yourself, then anyone who does is cracked. So therefore, I wouldn't be worried about those books. I may come back to them. I'm sure they're well-meaning. And I hope they'll spend a long time in purgatory finding out the truth. <laughs> <coughs> but in our meditations today, and we haven't much time, I'm so sad that I ought to really, I put all those books of Utopia there for you, in case anyone wanted to read it, read the introduction. Tomorrow I'll say something about it. Moore wrote the second chapter first. He was working in Bruges and negotiating on the wool trade, and the imperial people had to go off to Brussels to find out what the bosses said, and he didn't know what to do with himself, like some of you who are selling hoovers and other things. 
you hang around in the Holiday Inn, and he wrote the second half just for his own sake. Then he came back to England and wrote the first half, having said how wonderful these wild pagans, who he made up, how wonderful they were, then he very cleverly showed how ghastly a Christian country was. And then he transferred a little beginning part so as to join the two together. He did a great deal. He was the most extraordinary writer. But at any rate, tomorrow or sometime later, I'll have time to say something about that. I was sorry to hear that there's a good deal of talking about the house. People who came here thinking it would be very quiet uh, find that the, the birds are uh, making no noise at all. There are more birds indoors than out. Now, I understand, and I'm sure we mustn't in any way make it into Utopia, where they're all dragoons, uh, that, and I'm glad that people should talk, and when you bring your wife, you can hardly uh, put uh, plasticine on her lips or gum yours up uh, just for the weekend. Uh, no, I think we must have a feeling of holiday, and I'm thrilled that some people are going out in the afternoon. But I think we ought to be careful in the house, because there are people who come here for retreat, and uh, the silence for many people is important. But it's not ruthless, I mean, it's simply that we would think of others and make for ourselves too, not only go out but pray about all the world's a stage, because you'll be sans teeth, sans eyes, uh, like I am one day fairly soon. So therefore, we'll talk, think about death. And now we go on to St. Thomas More, and because he made these various ages of man, and when he got about to the stage of being the lover, that stage, he decided that he might be a priest. We know about him, he was immensely good-looking. In fact, he was almost pretty as a boy. And Erasmus and others say that, he blushed easily. And he had this one very curious thing about him, that his life was largely changed because his father wouldn't die. Olmore married four times. And when Thomas More was Lord Chancellor, he was still called Young More when he was about 50. I'm always sorry for any American who I see Junior written after his name, because they can change your life. More didn't mind, but old Judge More left all his money to his fourth wife, and Thomas More didn't get any. Luckily, he was a lawyer, so he made it elsewhere. But, uh, but it was, it, it's amazing, to, if any of you who've had that, a parent who goes on and on and on, uh, you're liable to be a bit odd. <laughs> and Moore put it, he had put it on his own epitaph, that he was called young Moore because his father was still alive. Now that affected him, and I see the reviewer here mentions that his, that his adolescence lasted till 30. It's a bit delayed. But then if you've got an old father with all these wives, who he got on with excellently, three stepmothers, he was affected. He was wonderfully simple. He always got on better with people older than himself. That's another trait that many of us have. In early childhood, or when he was 16, he was the dear friend of all the greatest scholars in Europe at the time, especially Collett and Grossin and Lineker, the first doctor. These were people... They all loved him. When middle-aged men, they, they always like a scholar, a student, who's going to be the same as themselves one day. Then later he got on better with people much younger than himself. 
he didn't not get on with his contemporaries, but you do get people who are much better with their children and grandchildren than they are with their contemporaries. So he certainly had that strange quality. Well, Moore, when, when he was about uh, uh, 17, he didn't decide to be a priest, but he went to the Charter House, which is just next door to his home in London. It's still standing. And it was the, the Carthusians are the strong, strictest order in the church, founded by St. Bruno in the ninth century. Any of you who've done it will get a, le a lesson in prayer to go to the Grand Chartreuse in France, where the liqueur comes from. I went there once, and the, the tourist crowds were enormous. And the poor monks had built at the bottom of the hill a kind of model cell to show the little houses the men lived in and hearing them singing so that people would stay down there, but nobody did. We all flogged up the hill to try and look over the wall. My brother and I, we were both Jesuits, we were the fastest. We got to the top of the hill. We even got right up and we almost looked into the great monastery that had been there all those centuries. Well, we came down and outside the monastery door, huge wall, there was a notice from the prior. And all the tourists with their sucking sort of awful gummy things on sticks, and they, they all read the notice. And it said, Father Pryor asks you not to disturb us. We're in here praying for you. <laughs> and they all dumped their lollipops and came down the hill chastised. But it was very moving. Now the Carthusians, you see, that now they're a little more lenient, but they are hermits. They each have a, a house with two, four little rooms, and they only meet at midnight for the office. And now that I believe they once a week they go for a walk, but they don't know what the heck to talk about. But they're a marvelous body, and Thomas More, they were, they were his favorites. Well, for four years, as a scholar, he went out in the day to study law. He went out to lecture occasionally, but there he began to try to pray. Now, he never wanted to be a priest. Erasmus, who knew him well, said that he had one time thought of being a priest, but Erasmus didn't know him at that time, and I don't think had any idea really what he was doing. Other people who knew him say that he thought of being a Franciscan, and others mentioned that he took no vows, he just lived with the monks and got up for their night prayer, and then he went off to his work. He was there for at least three years, and it's only one of the historians who actually know anything about it until his, the book he read was published. And, of course, the thing that I find so striking is that prayer was the key thing in his life. But then prayer is a very tricky subject. Every saint had his own method. It's a very personal thing. When I was young, I suppose the same as you, we only knew one activity, to say your prayers. My mother would yell up in the morning, have you said your morning prayers? We all said yes, when we hadn't. And then we also said, oh my God, act of faith, act of hope, act of... That was finished. I was a good Catholic for 24 hours. So you said your prayers, uh, you said the grace before meals, you said the rosary, you went to confession and said your sins, and they, the priest would say, will you say three Hail Marys? One poor boy said, Father, I only know one. <laughs> but I mean, all we knew was to say the office, to say everything. Have you said the act of contrition? That wasn't wrong, that, because that's all you can tell children. And 
but, but it's only the beginning. And more moved, like so many of the saints, all the world's a stage, when you get to about halfway down, if you made a retreat at, uh, here, um, uh, then you know that prayer changes. It turns into spiritual reading, and of course it turns into meditation. Now Thomas More, when he was there in the Charter House, when they all died as martyrs the same in the month before him, these holy old men, when he was there, he had a, this famous book by Picus, Earl of Mirandola. It was the Renaissance, all these extraordinary books from Greece and all the old classics that had never been heard of for centuries, all poured into Europe. And all his friends, like Collett and Grinnaker, went to Italy, and they all read. And the, the red-hot book to read at that time was this life of Picus, Earl of Mirandola, who had been a bit of an, a rake. He'd been like Thomas Merton a bit, and had uh, had all sorts of various love affairs and pic drawn funny pictures and all that, and suddenly felt he was g going wrong, and he took up theology very earnestly, but then he got tired of that, and then eventually he began to pray. When he died, a saintly death, whether he was a saint, I don't know, his nephew wrote this life. And Thomas More translated it for himself. This is the passage that certainly changed my life, and it will affect yours, I hope. The clear thing about our Lord and prayer is that Jesus told us two things, and you can try either of them. In the retreat, you can look up uh, the chapters and read them for yourself. One is in Matthew 18, verse 20, where our Lord said, I tell you solemnly, once again, if two of you on earth agree to ask anything at all, it will be granted to you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three meet in my name, I shall be in the middle of them. Our Lord made no doubt about it that one could pray in a crowd. So those of you who like saying hallelujah together, a charismatic move, our Lord is there. The prayer like we have in the mass or retreat, you can't deny it. That prayer in a crowd, our Lord is one of the crowd and is there for me. So you can't, would be very wrong, and Thomas More would never have agreed, to say that you've got to pray alone. And yet our Lord in Matthew 6 has the famous passage, and when you pray... Do not imitate the hypocrites. They love to say their prayers standing up in the synagogues and at street corners for people to see. I tell you solemnly, they have had their reward. But when you pray, go to your private room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in that secret place. And your Father who sees all that is done in secret will reward you. Then I won't go on. Our Lord goes on to say, don't babble. And then he goes on to say, and when you pray, pray thus, our Father who art in heaven. So in the retreat, if you want to get as near you will ever get to our Lord's instructions on prayer, you've got Matthew 18:20, and you've, where you can pray in a group, or you've got prayer in secret. Both are good, you can try both, but which is the more important? Well, I think it goes with character, temperament, and for Thomas More, certainly, praying alone was the key to his life. And so then you get him translating Picus, Earl of Mirandola, and this is his English. And I've done it before on a tape. To me, this made my life. And I feel that you, if you just note certain words, you can't 
read the passage, unfortunately, because you're not at Yale, where it is. But this is how he translated. His English goes with the mind of this strange holy man in the Renaissance in Italy. When I stir thee to prayer, I stir thee not to the prayer that stands in many words. So not many words, but to that prayer which in the secret chamber of the mind, you've got to find that. When you're on the stage, it's very easy. You've got you're showing off in front of other people. When, like the actor, you come off and take your theatrical clothes off, now you're yourself again. You can go lower than that in yourself. You can be reflecting, and then you can go even deeper to uh, this strange place, the secret chamber of the mind, the privy closet of the soul. Privy doesn't mean, it used to mean toilet, the men's room. But it also means the privy council. Privy means totally on your own. And you do find in the very centre of yourself, especially when you're waiting in the intense care unit with only the night nurse, then you've got a little part of yourself that you hardly has ever prayed. In the privy closet of the soul, with very affection, speaks to God, and in the most lightsome darkness of contemplation, like very light and yet dark, like a cloud. It's the cloud of our knowing, like Moses prayed in. Not only presents the mind to the Father, you present your whole you to the Father, but also united with him by unspeakable ways which they only know who have tried. It's an extraordinary thing when you do it. Augustine and Monica, when they had their great vision, they climbed up together, mother and son, and for one moment they knew they'd united with God. And then they suddenly came back to earth with a bump. But united it to him by unspeakable ways which only they know who tried. Nor care I how long or, or how short your prayer be. I don't care how long it is or short, but how effectual, how ardent. And rather interrupted and broken in between with sighs than drawn on long with a continual row and number of words. If you love your own health, if you desire to be safe from the snares of the devil, from the storms of the world, from the await of thy enemies, if you long to be acceptable to God, if you covet to be happy at the last, let no day pass you but that you once at least wise present yourself to God in prayer, falling down before him, flat to the ground, with a humble affection of devout mind. Not from the extremity of your lips, but out of the inwardness of your heart, crying these words of the prophet, the offenses of my youth and my ignorance remember not, good Lord, but after thy mercy, Lord, for thy goodness remember me. It's the most wonderful passage. I find that, now you're getting old, you can't get your head down to the ground, but the Mohammedans manage it very well. Sadat and all these other poor men, you see them, when they put their heads up to the ground, my gosh, they pray. It doesn't take a minute, you don't have any words, it's not, you're not acting, you mustn't have an audience. When you say to God, and you're not bound to any posture, I find when you put your head on the ground, 
it's very moving. Thomas More in Utopia, if you look it up, you'll find that they didn't believe in the real God. It's, you'll find it in Utopia. The Utopians at the start of their service fall down everyone reverently to the ground with so still a silence in every part that the very fashion of the thing strikes into them a certain fear of God as though he were there personally present. My mystery is that you can do that every day and have unlimited time for everything else. There's no value in a long prayer or a short prayer, though if you say a long prayer, if it helps you to tell God that he's everything, then it's good. But there may be times, Thomas More says that God likes words from people in good health, but when you're in pain, he wants nothing but you to offer your heart up. But when you're in great pain and fear and waiting for surgery, you've got to practice that. Well, many, many years later in the Tower of London, More wrote his last book. And he writes, this is what he talked about prayer for his children and his grandchildren when he had it gone. More says this, let him also choose himself some secret solitary place in his own house, as far from noise and company as he conveniently can. That's why we have silence in a retreat. And thither let him sometimes secretly resort alone, imagining himself as one going out of the world, even straight into the giving up of his reckoning unto God of his sinful living. Then let him before an altar or some pitiful image of Christ's bitter passion kneel down or fall prostrate at the very feet of Almighty God, verily believing him to be there invisibly present as without doubt he is. That he wrote himself, that the other one he translated. But that ran right through his life when he turned into the uh, important man with wise saws and modern instances. He never got to be a pantaloon. He died at 57. But you're quite certain that more when he was in the charter house that there he learnt what it was to pray in this extraordinary way. And I do stress it to you because it's the thing anyone can do. It needs no learning. It needs only the, all the world's a stage. You'll do it one day or try to when you're ill in bed or dying, but you can do it at any day. And if you do it every day, then you've got the right to expect that God knows you're his servant for the day. If you never, never adore God, you're done. Now, it was after reading that that Moore decided to leave the... not to be a, a, a... He didn't want to be a priest, he wanted to be a monk. He wanted to be a hermit. At a quite young age, 17, and there are many who do that. The Carmelites down the road are doing it. He gave up because when he was with God in that, and I'll read you the passage next time, he suddenly discovered that he was running away from life. That some people are so afraid of living their life in full, they're so afraid of temptation, they're so afraid that they'll sin, they're so afraid that, of life that they become hermits. More suddenly saw that for him, this craving to be alone was a sin. Not a sin, it was pusillanimous. He was not going out into the world and doing what he knew God would want him to do, even at risk. He read in Picus's life 
a th strange thing that the Pekers did. It, there's a headline after Pekers had had advice from God knows who. Savonarola had told him he ought to be a Dominican. He put it off, and Savonarola said that he had a vision and that Pekers was in purgatory for having dodged a vocation. When Moore read that, he decided, I'm off. He knew that he was a timid man. He was very, not timid, but a very sensitive man, that God wanted him to risk it with the love of God. If you pray to God, you can risk anything. And it says in Picus's life, Picus became his own master. That's the headline that Moore translated. And I'm quite sure that's exactly why, after all these years, he left the charter house and went off and married. All his life he said to his children and others how he would love to have been in the charter house. At the very end of his life, when he was in the prison at the tower, he looked out with Meg and saw the Carthusians being taken away to be hanged. They ended, all of them, in the same way. When he was put into the tower, he said how happy he was. He loved being in a little cell. Henry VIII found him a great problem. No trouble to him to be squashed between four walls. He prayed better. So I do put it on, on prayer that if you, you do it your own way, you can't copy anyone, but whether you try the cloud of unknowing, whether you follow a great writer of the Middle Ages like Hilton, who more loved, whether you pray with prayer, with words, you go slowly, or whether you can sit for just a few seconds off the stage, totally by yourself, and realize God's there, then if you do that, then you can go out and be a layman. Because then you can take what are seem risks, you can read books, talk dirty jokes, because other people are doing them, you can't go around like a Puritan. But what you do know is that God knows perfectly well that you're trying to serve him in a very difficult world. If you don't pray, then I don't know how the hell God knows. <laughs>